Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim. And you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the TalkHouse Podcast. I'm Nick Dawson, Editor-in-Chief of TalkHouse. On the TalkHouse Podcast, some artists on artist pairings just kind of make themselves. And the trio on today's episode of the show are a perfect example of that. Coming out tomorrow is The Sparks Brothers, a new documentary by Edgar Wright about the beloved cult band Sparks. And it was the easiest decision in the world to get both Edgar and his two subjects, Ron and Russell Nail, to sit down for a chat. Wright is one of those rare filmmakers who's still batting 1,000. For those keeping track, that's Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, The World's End, Baby Driver, and uh, The Sparks Brothers. All films that are joyously life-affirming, regardless of their subject matter. He's also famously one of the nicest men in Hollywood, and has previously appeared on the TalkHouse podcast chatting with one of his heroes, Jackie Chan. The Sparks Brothers is, in a way, Edgar communing with more of his heroes, this time musical rather than cinematic. He's a huge fan of the band Sparks, a group you've either kind of heard of or maybe you know one or two songs by or you're a hardcore fan who has obsessively devoured their 50-year discography for all those who fall into the former category the sparks brothers is a perfect primer an immersive and very colorful romp through the life and work of the brothers in the band guided not only by the siblings themselves but also a raft of celebrity superfans from fred armison jason schwartzman and mike myers to flea weird al yankovic and neil gaiman On this episode, among the many subjects Edgar and the males touch on, is the brothers' deep love of cinema. They teamed on ultimately unrealized projects with filmmakers as diverse as Jacques Tati and Tim Burton, and have just had a dream collaboration with Leos Carax on the upcoming Annette, starring Marion Cotillard and Adam Driver, which is the opening night movie of this summer's Cannes Film Festival. The three friends also talk about Edgar's other 2021 release, the forthcoming time travel thriller Last Night in Soho, and get enjoyably deep into a discussion of all things culinary, ranging from Ron and Russell's dietary quirks and love of French lunches to Edgar's very upscale food allergies. This is a veritable smorgasbord of an episode, and it's a real pleasure to listen to three people who so obviously relish each other's company. So without further ado, let's roll the tape. Hi, Edgar. Hey, what's up? It's always a delight to see you and talk to you. And the only sad thing is that at time of press, because of the pandemic, I have not been in the same room as you since we finished filming. I think maybe the last time I saw you in person, unless I'm wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, was on the set of Annette. Is that right? Is that the last time I saw you? I think that that's probably the case. The set of Annette in Brussels, Belgium. Yeah, yeah we were shooting a, a big, can't give away too much, obviously, but a, a water scene in a big studio that accommodates a big water tank so you can shoot water scenes and make it look as real or unreal as you, as you want it to look. Yeah, so you guys came over from London for the day. That was cool. It's funny because in a similar way, and maybe we'll backtrack and talk about it, but like after you being quite elusive figures in my life for, you know, like the last like 40 years, I guess, or more. Then when I met you, it was relatively swift. Once I'd figured out that you followed me on Twitter and I immediately kind of messaged you guys and then we're having breakfast within 72 hours. 
And we can talk about that in a second, but it was a similar funny thing with uh, Leos Carrick, the director of The Net, because he himself is quite an enigmatic, elusive figure. Like, he's sort of like the one-man sparks of film, although less prolific. Like, he doesn't, br- he doesn't bring out a film every two years. <laughs> Let's just say he's more of a perfectionist than we are. <laughs> I wouldn't say that's true. But what is funny is that Leos is not somebody that you see doing a lot of press, and, like, he takes long gaps between his films. I'm not even sure necessarily I had a great idea of what he looked like. But when I was coming to the Annette set, I was sort of told, which I totally understand. They said, oh, it's unlikely that you'll get to talk to Leos for the Sparks documentary because he's busy. He's directing. And I, as a director, can completely sympathize with that because when people come on set, the last thing that I want when I'm working is people coming to visit me on set. It's like I literally dissuade people from coming saying, don't come. I don't have time. I'm not hanging out. It's like, this is like the most intense work of my life when I'm actually on set. So given all of that, I wasn't expecting to meet Laos and I wasn't expecting to talk to him. And then as we got like a, in a, um, you know, like our minibus from the hotel, like, and got to the stages in Brussels, the first person I saw standing outside the stage smoking a cigarette true to French director form was Laos. And so he was the first person that I met and I started talking to him outside whilst he was finishing off his uh, his Siggy. So I thought that was quite amusing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's he's been banned from every set wherever we go. He, he's been relegated to standing outside of every set where we've been shooting because he, he, he smokes quite a bit. And, but that's, you know, he's French, so he's allowed to, uh, you know, get those giton uh, flowing, you know. There's but, a yeah. minute break regularly at every meal that you go out with him uh, for just so he can step outside at least in America anyway so he can step outside and have his French thing and then come back in now I have I'm going to ask you some questions I'm going to ask roundabout questions because we're not allowed to spoil any of Annette and for the record I haven't seen it yet I've got an awareness of what it is but I'm so excited to see the actual thing so let's not talk about the plot because we can't so it's um, a French production shot in Brussels and Los Angeles, but it's a French production. So my my question, having never made a French film before, what were the lunches like? Oh man, <laughs> come on! The best that was the the best thing. They were true to France. There was uh, almost no time for shooting. We were too busy <laughs> having lunch break. Yes, but we must break for the uh, the déjeuner. No. No, they were they were true to form, and you'd always get your uh, creme caramel for dessert and uh, uh, une petite salade. No, pourquoi pas? And um, what else do we have? They, the the sad thing though, they were they were accommodating to vegetarians too. So we thought that that kind of blew, you know. And Ron's a vegetarian, a pure, uh, flat out vegetarian. I'm kind of ninety two percent vegetarian but it's kind of sad when you're you know you're in france and, and on a movie set and there's all the buff bourguignon and everything and you got to have a you know a, the salad you know and all of that so it's kind of yeah it's a pity that they've kind of accommodating you know <laughs> russell you're 92 percent vegetarian is that what yes. you said what is the eight percent you can't kick <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> i'm probably more 99.9 but then when i do have you know if there's a a barbecued chicken hanging around the room 
count me in. I like I like barbecue places. And sometimes we go a lot to Japan too. And so it's really hard there, even though the assumption is that Japan is really healthy, uh, you know, healthy and uh, less meat eating country. But but it's kind of it's not the case so much that everything. If you're a you know strict vegetarian, most of the Japanese dishes are even soups are made from a fish stock. So Ron was like having to like you know sniff around in that bowl of uh, <laughs> bowl of soup to make sure that there wasn't any uh, you know squid floating around there or anything. The negotiations were very complex in Japan for getting that miso soup that was uh, pure, but I was usually able to negotiate pretty well. Ron, you've been vegetarian or vegan, not vegan, vegetarian, vegetarian since the 80s, like for a long time, right? Yeah, yeah. Actually, no, like in the 90s, because I remember when we were in Germany in the 90s, I was uh, hitting the charcuterie pretty heavy. <laughs> but sometime in the early 90s, you know, and there, there wasn't any reason for it. I didn't, you know, just have a this moment where, oh, God, I can't watch another animal being uh, massacred. In fact, even to this point, I'm not repelled by that good old barbecue smell. It really uh, haunts me. Maybe it's just something that sticks with you for your whole life. But anyway, I, I don't feel deprived. We recorded tons of albums, well, not tons of albums. We recorded several albums in, in Brussels, and that's the home of uh, Muscles. And so Ron was, at that point, Ron was not a vegetarian. He he went full in on the muscles, and one one day he came back looking about 400 pounds heavier than he was the the, de- the day before, and he had a bad batch of muscles, and uh, yeah, bloated him right up. So that was the end of his muscles career. What is the food like on uh, on your sets? Uh, good, usually, although it's something that I like don't personally like to think about too much because like lunch is not like. It's never like a down period for me. Usually like sort of lunch is like, I'm usually like have to have something that I can scoff quickly because there's usually something happening for me at lunch, whether I got to go and look at something or go and do something else. Sometimes on some films, I've even staggered the B camera so I can kind of keep shooting through lunch. I, I certainly did that on The World's End where and Shaun of the Dead where we needed extra shots. And so one way of doing it was to kind of get camera to come in an hour later and then work with me on a couple of like inserts and stuff during lunch and then so i would never sort of take a lunch break i have a similar thing to you i like sort of i have my one intolerance is to oysters and i had one bad oyster once and then i think i have this kind of psychosomatic allergy to it then if they if it ever if i ever the next two times i had oysters i was like violently ill and actually the other day i felt really i felt really stupid because this might be too much information for this podcast, but I had some surgery, some minor shoulder surgery. And when you go into the, the hospital, you have to write down on the allergies form what you're allergic to. So I write down oysters is the only thing I'm allergic to. But then they give you that wrist tag, like a red wrist tag, and it just says oysters on it. And I felt like a fool. It's like, it's, I felt, I, and I even asked the nurse, I said, oh, I don't have to wear that, do I? And she said, no, I'm sure you don't. 
And she came back and said, oh, no, the doctor says you do. And I thought, oh, I'm being wheeled into the operating room. It would be like I had a red tag that said foie gras or like champagne. Please, <laughs> whatever you do, do not give this man champagne in the hospital. He's allergic. So I just thought, what? An, I, look, I must have sounded like Lord Snooty, like I had a monocle and a top hat and a little, re- a little red wristband that said oysters. I would have flashed that around myself. Actually. Yeah, all the times I've been in, in a hospital, I'd said, it's rough when they come around and ask you, uh, how would you like your oysters served? <laughs> so, um, doctor, I'm allergic to blinis. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't you now ask me a question if you have one? <laughs> it doesn't have to be food related. Okay, but if you did take the lunch break on the set, do you hang out with any of the actors or do you hang out or do the actors even come for the lunch break? They might be in the their trailers wanting to get their head wrapped around what the next scene is maybe. Or so. having their oysters. <laughs> I think the actors almost, you know, always go back to their trailer and stuff. Like, I don't know. I guess it's something like I have to respect the crew and just let them let them have an hour off because I, I, I find it very difficult to talk about other things. Like, it's not like I would be the kind of guy that would, like, be talking about the football and stuff. I'm sort of thinking about what I got to do later in the day, you know. So I, I, I don't know. I think I think it's more about would I hang out with the crew. It's more like I feel like they need an hour off from me talking about the film. <laughs> <laughs> on, on our set, I think, uh, I think Adam was never, Adam Driver was never present for the lunches. But I think Marianne, Marianne Cotillard, I think she, she came a, a few times, I think, and kind of, sat down right in there amongst everybody that the crew and stuff and same with simon helberg he was he was a lunch guy too so i guess it, i guess it just varies uh and i guess it, it obviously if your scene is coming up after lunch you don't want to have all the uh you know mustard dripping down your face for it kind of doesn't look so well on camera i just like the fact that annette is currently um pre the Cannes film festival where it's the opening film we should mention I like that it's a, a relatively mysterious film. Like the teaser doesn't give much away, but I like that here we're going into a deep dive on everybody's lunch requirements. <laughs> <laughs> well, it shows our priorities. Hey, and we saw the trailer for last night in Soho. Uh, we saw it yesterday, man. That, I mean, the movie looks incredible and tells you something about the movie, but obviously doesn't tell you everything, but it just looks amazing in, uh, in the trailer. So I guess it's not, I'm not giving away anything because I haven't seen the movie, so I don't know the, the implications, but you, you use the, a version of um, the song Downtown in the, in the trailer, which is really haunting and uh, gives a whole nother uh, reading of that song. It's really fantastic. Yeah. I never thought of Downtown as being kind of the eeriest song I ever heard, but in that <laughs> context, you know, it was like, Perfect. It's funny you mention that because that is the actress Anya Taylor Joy singing. That's actually her singing. That's her like live vocal. She sings the song in a scene in the movie. But I have to give credit to the trailer editors who decided to do a teaser completely based around that. But it's funny you say that about like not giving too much away about my film, but there are quite a lot of female sixties vocalists on the soundtrack. And one of the reasons I did that is because I always felt that a lot of sixties songs of that period do have this kind of touch of melancholy about them. They're like, even the upbeat ones is they're sort of upbeat, but usually about heartbreak or something terribly sad. And that was something that when I was writing the script, I was listening to sort of those songs almost exclusively because it was getting me in the zone of like these kind of um, 
you know, and it, it's an interesting thing that it's difficult to know whether that is coming from the songwriter or the singers themselves. Sometimes I guess that the lyrical content is a little more bittersweet than maybe the actual performance that like Scylla Black might be giving. But then when you start to listen to it, thinking, wait, is this a really sad song? So there's a lot of that kind of music from that period in the, in the, cause it's set in the sixties. So there's a lot of like British pop of that period that I always found kind of interesting in terms of that it had a sort of always like a tinge of tears about it, you know? Yeah. Even, even songs like to serve with love or something like that. It's like, there's something about it that kind of works on a couple of different levels. And, you know, I really appreciate music. We both you know, including the Sparks Brothers, we both have two films coming out this year, which is quite rare. And it's just sort of kind of unplanned, I guess. When I knew Annette was looming, I did feel because we have a, a, a scene from the Annette set, I did feel like, oh God, we got to get the Sparks Brothers out before Annette because otherwise, you know, if Annette comes out and then we have a scene talking about it as a, a, a film that's coming soon, it will, will be out of date. So it kind of worked out perfectly as a sort of one-two to the other film. And then, you know, I have a second film coming out this year, which is unusual. But maybe just to contextualize it for people who haven't seen the documentary, you might be listening. Aside from your storied career in music, which is your first album, Half Nelson, then later just Sparks, is 50 years old this year. Like, aside from your discography, you have both long-held film ambitions which we cover some of which in the movie so maybe like talk a little bit about that in the lead up to actually finally getting one made two made in one year a lot of this is covered in the documentary but while we were growing up we went to movies all the time just really hollywood our parents especially our father would take us just to local movie theaters and we would see double bills usually either uh, uh cowboy movies or or war movies. And then we really developed the passion for film. And when we went to university, Russell studied cinema, I studied graphic design, but we both had just a love of, of film. And at that time, there was a thing where if you liked cool English music, you also liked French New Wave films and Ingmar Bergman and some of the Japanese directors that were uh, working at the time. So I, I, you know, it was a really kind of a healthy situation where you were kind of forced to like things or be exposed to things that maybe you wouldn't have been just because it was cool to do that. And so we always wanted, when things started developing for us as a band, we always had a desire in the back of our heads. I mean, it wasn't the primary mission, but that at some point we'd really like to have an opportunity to combine our music with cinema in some kind of way not so much a soundtrack but kind of something that's more at the basis of a film and and in the mid-70s we were introduced to the fantastic french director jacques tati and there was an enlightened person at our record company who thought that there was you know we we i make no kind of comment about whether the of the correctness of this assumption but that there was some kind of sensibility connection between sparks and jacques tati and so we were introduced to him and he was working on a project at the time called Confusion. And in any case, we met with him several times and things were being worked on. And then the project didn't happen, unfortunately, both, you know, for financial reasons and just for some health reasons at the time. So that was kind of our first disappointment. And then uh, 
we were working on a in the late 80s and early 90s adapting a Japanese manga called My the Psychic Girl to be a, a movie musical. And Tim Burton got wind of it and he said, I, I really want to direct this. And so, you know, we, we kind of fell for it again. And for various reasons, that one didn't happen as well. And so, you know, we've had these little kind of bites along the way. And the one thing that we have learned is don't only think of that movie thing and put aside what you can control, which is writing songs and recording as sparks. So we've learned that lesson. So when the Annette situation happened, we went to uh, the Cannes Film Festival about eight years ago, and we there was a project that we were trying to sell, but it wasn't Annette. And uh, we met the director, Leos Carrick's there, and, and when we got back to L.A., Russell said, why don't we send him this idea that we have, Annette? And he really responded favorably and said, let me let me just kind of chew on this for two weeks and and then I'll let you know. And he said he wanted to direct it. So we kind of thought, well, cool, but here we go again, you know, and, and so for this actually to happen now after eight years, but, you know, it's, it's just a, a dream for us to have a film opening at Cannes and then to have two films in one year, it's like, you know, kind of getting paid back for all the times that we've had disappointments. What's interesting as well is that, you know, um, the irony being like, because you have been developing film projects. And in fact, there's a, I know there's a further history to My The Psychic Girl with at least two other directors. Maybe we can talk about that. But what's ironic to me about Annette is that you'd written an album and that was going to be the next Sparks album. And then like Leos kind of like, likes the idea of that as being a film so essentially you had Annette as a prospective Sparks album which was then shelved to become the movie correct that's right yeah yeah we we had done one other project for the Swedish national radio called The Seduction of Ingmar Bergman and it was a radio music drama and then we ended up really liking that form because that was just a completely uh oral experience. It wasn't a movie. It was something that the Swedish radio had as a regular programming thing, musical dramas, which was really cool. And so after doing that project, we really liked working in that form too. And so we thought we came up with another idea, which was Annette. And we we came up with primarily the basis of, we said, we have to have a, a, a story idea, but that has very few characters so that we could tour with it. Uh, because with the section of Ingmar Bergman, it had, I think, 11 characters in it. And just budget-wise, we couldn't tour with that. We, we did one performance of it, actually. It's sort of a abbreviated performance of it, it at the L.A. Film Festival around the time that the section of Ing- Ingmar Bergman came out. And, and Guy Madden came, was, took part in that live performance of it. And it was really special, but we couldn't figure a way to replicate that you know, around the world. It was just too expensive. So then we thought, okay, we need to come up with another idea. And that was sort of the genesis of Annette. It was not based on the story at all. It was based on, well, let's have a story with three characters. We can handle that. Two of the characters could be Ron and myself. And then we'll have a third character, which was a female that would also tour with Sparks at that time. So we went, we came up with the entire story for Annette wrote all of the music for Annette and the dialogue, which is a part of the music as well. And then we said, okay, well, we have Sparks' next album. We were really happy with it. And that was when 
we went to Cannes and with Ron's story about meeting up with Leos Carax and then to our surprise, he said he wanted to direct it. So it no longer was a Sparks album, but it became a movie. What was the musical contingent of My the Psychic Girl? Was that also a movie musical? That was, My the Psychic Girl was was completely a movie musical. Yeah, that, that had no press. It was not intended for another purpose. It was based on a Japanese manga. And we were brought into the project by a screenwriter and producer named Larry Wilson, who had co-written and co-produced Beetlejuice for Tim Burton. And Larry was a fan of Sparks, and he had also was a fan of Japanese manga. And he had had this idea to make that story, but into a musical. And would we want to do the the music and, and incorporate the uh, dialogue and all into that music? So we, we thought it was a really good challenge and something we, you know, hadn't done. And so we devoted, you know, several years to that project because Tim Burton, after we'd finished writing it, we, we invited Tim Burton over to my place to hear the stuff. We actually just bumped into him at a, at a restaurant, coincidentally, but we knew he had known the other writer, fellow Larry Wilson, and we saw Tim and we just said, hey, we've got this thing we're doing. You want to hear it? So he came over immediately, laid on the couch and sat there for an hour and a half, listened to all the music, said, it's fantastic. I want to direct it. So we went, wow, this is so easy. Hollywood, what's the deal? Why are all these people complaining about Hollywood? And then he he did sign on to direct it. And then he he wanted to have a rewrite of the original screenplay. And at that point, after like a year of revisions of the screenplay, which was kind of not our area on that story, we were taking more of Larry Wilson's direction in the, the actual story of it. Uh, and then we were taking it and kind of shaping it into a musical thrust. But uh then Tim had just had some reservations about the rewrite. And he's one of the directors that has, you know, 10 projects, probably more than 10 projects in development. So any one project, you know, he can hop onto another thing, which is really opposite of Leos Carex in our current situation, because he isn't the type of director that has 10 projects. He only focused on Annette for eight years. And so it's a, it's a whole different, uh, you know, different way of working. So so unfortunately, it didn't happen with Tim Burton on that project. And then we went to Hong Kong a couple of times because we and, and, and the screenwriter, Larry Wilson, were fans of the Hong Kong director, Chewy Hark. And he had these really fantastic sort of supernatural ghost stories that were really amazing technique with characters who flew and all, but kind of in a really beautiful sort of stylized way and just really magical kind of films. And Joey Hark had also been a fan of My the Psychic Girl, that story, he was aware of it. So we had asked him about directing it and he said, yes. So we went several times to Hong Kong, met with Joey Hark. He had storyboards all over the walls of his office for My the Psychic Girl. And then they couldn't get the financing to do, <laughs> to do the film. And so that went south and there were more directors, but uh, yeah, it, the story gets boring after a while. So it had a, it's had a long uh, history and, oh, and one, just one anecdote, I won't drone on, but we got a call from Tim Burton, like several years ago saying, Hey guys, I was thinking about that project. Did you remember we had that project, My the Psych Girl? And he said, I don't have the music laying around anymore, but he knew we were coming to London for a tour. And he said, would you guys want to meet? And we'll, um, I'd like to hear it again. And just because I keep thinking about that project. So we said, yeah, it'd be great. We went to London, met with Tim, 
presented him with a little iPod at the time, just to have a nice little presentation piece with all the music on it. He said, great, let me go away for, you know, a couple of days to listen to this and soak it in. And then, and he got back to said, this is amazing. It's exactly what I remembered it to be. I love it. Let's do it. He said, but you know something? I like to work fast. So let's get going on this quick. We said, okay, let's work fast. <laughs> so after sitting around for uh, whatever it was, 15 years or something. More than that. So, yeah, yeah, we'll work fast. So then we never heard another thing about the project after that, after working fast. I mean, we got in touch with him and he got in touch with us, but it was good. Yeah, I'm kind of working on some stuff. Let me, uh, no, I really want to, and anyway. Here's the happy ending to this story, which I'm just going to project out into the universe. Tim Burton watches the Sparks Brothers documentary. It gets to that bit where we talk about my the Psychic Girl um, not coming together. And he says, I got to give Ron and Russell a call. And third time lucky, my the Psychic Girl goes into production. I can feel it in my bones. Okay. okay. We're writing right. <laughs> that I'm writing it down now. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. I have another question. With the music that you've done for projects, have you ever repurposed something written for something else that was then unused and, and said, you know what, like that film's not going to happen. Let's turn that song into a spark song. Have you ever let, done that repurpose something you've already written? Good question. I don't know. I mean, a lot of the times we kind of, once we've done something, we always feel that when a fresh project or period comes along we kind of hate recycling songs because it you know you kind of feel even in yourself that it's sort of old news even though no one's even heard the song to us it sounds like old news and it kind of reminds you of that period where there's this it's like a, a second sale you know or where you you know it's like damaged goods for some reason even though it's not really damaged because no one's heard of it. So I, I can't remember too many instances where we had repurposed anything. Do you remember anything? No, no, no. I got a story. Um, have you ever heard this story about John Barry? So in the late 70s, he's asked to do an Italian Star Wars ripoff called Star Crash. And I think he takes the money sight unseen. He doesn't see the movie. And maybe he's in a sort of Italian style. I think Ennio Morricone used to do this a lot as well like wrote the score before the movie's even made. So he writes this stirring, like amazing theme for this film, Star Crash. And then I think he sees it once on the scoring stage and says, this is a piece of shit, but like, it's done. What can I do? Like, that's the music for Star Crash. The movie like bombs cut to like seven years later, John Barry's doing Out of Africa with Meryl Streep and thinks, you know what? Nobody saw Star Crash. I'm just going to use the theme from Star Crash as the theme out of Africa. Now, in this day and age, like he won the Oscar for Out of Africa. In this day and age, with the internet and musicologists, people would be on that immediately and saying, hey, this is he ripped off his own score. But back then, John Barry essentially won an Oscar for the theme from Star Crash. And I think that's a very that's but that's a happy story. I think he he's earned the right to do that. It's OK. Yeah. yeah. No, that's that's great. Well, we should start. Yeah, we got to be more uh, ruthless with our discards. <laughs> Get them out there. They're not so bad. Yeah, Suddenly, the, the the next Sparks album would be the suspiciously titled 
guy the psychic boy (laughs) (laughs) you've already you've already got a whole album just waiting there change a couple of letters nobody will know yeah no that's good i like guy the psychic girl yeah guy the psychic boy oh it's the guy the psychic boy yeah you change put a g and a b and then you there's it's a then it's a completely different thing that's right yeah no that's a good idea having spoken to you many times for the documentary you've often said that like making like one album in terms of like what your ambitions were back in the like the late 60s when you formed your ambitions only went as far uh, correct me if i'm wrong as like the first album so when you made the debut album then called half nelson with todd rungren that was the kind of the summit of your ambitions at the time so if somebody like a sort of a time traveler in 1971 came to you like outside the studio and said, you, you've just finished Half Nelson. You've just got the first pressing of it. You think this this album's going to be a smash. And then you run into a time traveler in the street and he comes up and says, guys, this is not the hit. But know this, you'll still be releasing albums in 2021 AD. And you're going to have two movies out in that year. What would you think? Well, I'd, I'd phone 911 immediately and have the person committed we try not to kind of even think about the situation so much because it's so it's so absurd, you know. But it is true, though, that with the first album in 1971, that having that piece of vinyl in our hands, that was really, we did it. We, you know, th- that was kind of everything. I would have I never felt bitter at that time if that were the end of, of everything because, you know, that it was dream fulfilled. We had a manager at that time too, our, when our, during the half Nelson sparks first album period. And he was this cigar smoking, real Hollywood, uh, old school guy. And he went, guys, uh, you know, the lifespan of a band is six months. So get that, get that into your heads. So he went, so we went back home that night, really depressed him telling us, you know, we have six months and then, uh, you better start looking for a, a job in a shoe store or something. And, and, and so if uh, he, if he remembered the story of what he told us back in 72, that your lifespan is probably about six months based on his, his experience with other bands, then uh, yeah, he would be uh, having to eat his words too. <laughs> I don't want to exhaust you, but you've done six months a hundred times. <laughs> Oi, uh, yeah, <laughs> don't don't remind us. Listen, it's an amazing body of work, and that doesn't even that doesn't even count. Like that's just the twenty five albums, let alone everything else. It's incredible. Yeah, uh, with your film projects, for each film, is it a project that you've written recently that for that film, or do you ever kind of go back to something that was an idea quite a while ago and then kind of refurbished it in a certain sense and got excited about it again? Only in one case. Most of the time I've written what I want to do and then done it. So, for example, Shaun of the Dead, essentially, excluding my film that I made when I was 20 years old, which, you know, being under 78 minutes, I don't quite count as a proper feature film. But um, as excluding that, Shaun of the Dead is my first proper screenplay that I wrote with Simon. But it wasn't like I really had anything else in the drawer But then weirdly, the two very faint things were in between Fistful of Fingers and Shaun of the Dead, which is like a, you know, like a basically a decade. I had written another film when I was like 21 that was about kids on a pub crawl in the West Country. 
And it was very much like a sort of like a drunken American graffiti, dazed and confused type film, but set in the West Country. And obviously I never did anything with it. And I started doing TV, comedy TV, which is then how I got to do Spaced and then eventually do Shaun of the Dead. But like, so I never wanted to return to that script, but it it sort of became like the first five minutes of The World's End. What if like that was like the prologue to that film was these kids on this kind of pub crawl. And then I guess the other thing like that was that Baby Driver never existed as a script, but the idea, the germ of the idea went back to like 1995 when I was like living in London for the first time. And it, it was literally listening to the John Spencer Blues Explosion song, Bell Bottoms, that I had like what I can only describe as like action movie synesthesia <laughs> where I would like listen to the song and like imagine this car chase and I could never like listen to that song without thinking of the car chase so over the years sometimes consciously sometimes not I would start to sort of be building up this idea in my head and then and then finally it was after Scott Pilgrim when I was living in LA I was like I'm gonna write that film I'd never like thought about writing it whilst I was living in the UK because it just didn't seem like a car chase film could exist in the UK like as you as you well know like sort of london has like proofed itself for car chases <laughs> it's not like the 70s where you'd have bank robbers like tearing around is like london has got such a impenetrable <laughs> labyrinthine like one way system that you could never have a car chase in the central london it's funny what well, you said just i just sort of flick back to something you said cuz it made me think of something i hadn't thought about in a long time the thing of like holding the half nelson vinyl in your hand and sort of thinking that that was the summit of your ambitions. I had a similar thing when my movie that I made when I was 20 was called Fist, A Fistful of Fingers. And it was released for like a couple of weeks at the Prince Charles Cinema. And then it was on Sky Movies kind of in the graveyard slot. Sky Movies bought it, would play it, would play it after midnight. But it, it came out on VHS. It's the only format that it's ever so far been released in. And me and my two sort of, one, two friends, um, one friend that I lived with actually, he was in the movie. And my other friend who was in it was at that point doing drama college. So when the VHS was out, it was in like HMV and Tower Records. And I don't know why, but we would go and look at the VHS in HMV and just like, and just look at it. And also what amused us endlessly was that it would have a sticker with the price and it would have the title of the movie and then the stars. So like, sort of like, if you were buying The Great Escape on VHS, it would say like, you know, Great Escape, the McQueen Steve. And then we would just like be looking at this VHS with a sticker on it where it would say like sort of like Fistful of, fing- uh, Fistful of Fingers, ah. Uh. And then like my friend's name was like uh, Ollie Evans and it would said Evans Ollie. And we'd be like, ooh, Evans Ollie, <laughs> like McQueen Steve. <laughs> and it was just like, and it was, a, it was an endless, we was like, we would, and I, f- I feel like maybe we were waiting in the HMV for somebody to come and pick it up and saying, hey, that's our film. But of course, that never happened. <laughs> we, we, we shamelessly would go, when there were record stores, uh, would go to the record stores and, and if uh, we would stick the S Sparks section, we would put it up in the front of the bin so that our oh, Sparks yeah. albums would be in the front as opposed to being behind uh, Springsteen or or whatever we go before anybody so we we would shameless oh and sometimes not even just the Sparks thing we if they would have like say six Sparks albums we would put them 
along in a row in the display so that every album in that row, the first album was Sparks. And then people would say, yes, well, there's a big S section in Tower Records. <laughs> well, the, the employee choices and the employee <laughs> choices were always Sparks. I don't think that's, I, I think that's just good, like, sort of, that's good marketing sense. I think, I think a lot of bands would uh, do that and maybe not admit to it. So I'm sure you're not alone. Well, I mean, listen, we've done a lot of Zooms. And we've been interviewed for this documentary many times, but we've never, we haven't interviewed each other. And I'm not sure we did a great job of it, but I just had fun chatting to you. Yeah. 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 We were, uh, we should do this again and, and not have the zoom recorder on just do it for real. Barbecue chicken for Russell miso soup with no squid in it for Ron. (laughs) Boy, you got, you have a memory. You got a memory. (laughs) And uh, yeah. Extra oysters for Edgar. (laughs) What are you? <laughs> Russell's trying. Wait, stop, stop the tape. Russell's trying to assassinate me. Thank you so much to Edgar Wright and Ron and Russell Mayo from the Sparks for being on the Talkcast podcast. And thanks to you for listening. The Sparks Brothers is out in theaters tomorrow from Focus Features. Go seek it out. Also, keep your eyes peeled for Edgar's Last Night in Soho, which is out in the fall. And Annette which will premiere on the Croisette in just a couple of weeks and should hit US screens sometime in the new year. This episode was produced by Melissa Kaplan and the TalkCast podcast theme music, as ever, was composed and performed by The Range. For more filmmakers talking film and TV, visit TalkCast.com film. Subscribe to the TalkCast podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And go dig into our archive, including Edgar Wright and Jackie Chan. I'm Nick Dawson, and until next time, Take it easy and stay safe.